How are we doing, Revolution? That wasn't bad, but because we've established a tradition, let's try it again. How are we doing, Revolution? There we go. All right. Well, if you're wondering what the new shirts look like, here they are. Here's a, a white version of, of the shirt. This is a uh, co-production, I guess, of Katie Reed and her design and, and Nate the Wolf up here putting these together with his company, uh, Rise Above the Hate, R-A-T-H. So um, you need to grab one of these. And also, if you haven't, you also, of course, need to grab one of these Kayla Pickerson Band uh, shirts and CDs. Um, I will pimp those. I don't mind. Um, In the meantime, let's go to the Gospel of Mark, shall we? We're in Mark 8. And we're covering a lot of ground tonight. Now, let me just remind you, these t-shirts, the reason that we invested... Ooh, that sounds bad. I'm going to have to stay over here. The reason we invested in these t-shirts is that what we want to do is we've had some problems. If you haven't noticed, I mean, a year ago, we were about 200 plus in attendance. We were packed, mostly college students. That has radically dropped over the last year. Part of that problem is that Shawnee State decided they were no longer going to display our flyers or anything like that. And so we started thinking, okay, well, what can we do about that if they're not going to let us display their flyers? We said, well, we'll just give all their students free t-shirts and we'll display the flyers that way. And what can they do about that? And so that's the reason for uh, the t-shirts. Now, the reason the t-shirts do not have an address and time on them is because we are looking to move. We are looking for a new building. Not that the set of Saw 4 is not awesome, but uh, we are looking for a new building, and so we are actively looking. I will just tell you, uh, because everybody asks when I say this, hey, have you talked to such and such church? Yes, they've all said no. So um, uh, they've all said, you're too edgy, you're too weird, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Imagine that. So, um, but that's not going work, so we're looking for an alternative solution. So pray for that and get your t-shirts, because here's what we want to do. We want to do stuff that is totally different from other churches, not just to be different, but because we want to reach people who don't like church, right? We want to, we want to reach people who are like, you know what? I know my life is empty. I know I need something more, but I just have been burned by church. I don't like church. We want to reach those people and introduce them to Jesus Christ. That's what it's about, Okay. All right, so Mark 8, which is in the Blue Bible. If you do not have a Bible, grab one of those Blue Bibles. And uh, by the way, if you do not own a Bible, please take that Bible home with you. It is yours. And that is page what in the Blue Bible, by the way? 604 in the Blue Bible. We are in Mark 8, and here we go. About this time, another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people, the Greek that I feel compassion for them. They have been here with me for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. They've been with him for three days. They have been listening to him teach for three days, sleeping there, listening to him all day long, and sleeping there on the ground, and then listening to him some more. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way, for some of them have come a long distance. Now, if you've never been to Israel, it's like Arizona. So it's very hot. It's very dry. So what he is saying is true. I mean, you spend three days out there, you don't have much to eat, you will not make it home. His disciples replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Now, we have already seen Jesus feed people. 
Thousands of people with bread and fish. His disciples were there. So the question that rises in my mind, are they that stupid that they are really raising this question again? And the answer to the question is this. Where is Jesus now? When he fed people the first time, he was in Jewish territory. Now, as we saw last week, he's in Gentile territory. Now, what we have seen is that when Jesus goes into a place where people have little faith, he says he cannot do any miracles. So what are the disciples thinking? There can't be any faith here. These aren't our people. You can't multiply loaves and fishes here. These aren't our people. You see what's going on? Verse 5. Jesus asked, How much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. For those of you who have grown up in church, this sounds like what? Communion, right? It's communion. It's the Lord's Supper. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too, so Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted, right? So, I mean, they, this, they, they hit it hard. Thank Golden Corral on a Sunday afternoon. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 people in the crowd that day, and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples and crossed over to the region. So you, you see what's going on here is the disciples do not believe that those people can have any faith. And so therefore, Jesus is not going to perform any miracles for those people who have no faith. Right? That's what's going on. Now, if you don't think that continues to today, then, uh, you know, fortunately for you, you have not spent a lot of time in church culture. Right? I mentioned that we, we have been looking to other churches to try and rent space on Sunday night. And one of the churches that we try to rent from and I'm quoting, I'm not bashing here, I'm just, I'm just saying how the church culture works. You know, they said, you have too many druggies in your church. This was their response. Now, for those of you who have read the Gospels, during Jesus' day, I get this all the time on my blog and stuff, um, you shouldn't watch that, you shouldn't listen to this, because you need to have a, a stellar reputation. What was the reputation Jesus had at the time in Israel? As a drunkard and a glutton. Why? Because he went to the drunken parties and he was among the people who just absolutely gorged themselves on whatever excess they could get their hands on. And I'm sitting there thinking, if I have the same reputation as Jesus, I think I'm fine. Right? Right? But this is the church culture. The church culture is people need to come to us for truth. And before they do, they really need to clean up. And then we'll allow them among us. But the fact was, the way Jesus did things, and the way his disciples did things, including Paul later was, 
We leave the truth centers and we go out there to those people and we show them love and compassion. And that's how it works. You just wonder what the church would look like today if they continued that pattern, right? Verse 11. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and started to argue with him. Testing him, they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. Has he not done this again and again and again and again in Mark? Right? Has he not fed thousands? Has he not cast out demons? Has he not healed people? And they're like, eh, I don't know. Not quite sure. Now this continues, not to be too hard on the Pharisees, because this continues with the disciples. If you go to the end of Matthew, when Jesus has risen from the grave with the wound still on his body, and he starts to ascend into the heavens, it says, and some doubted. If a guy died, you watched him be tortured and killed. And three days later, he rose and came and sat down and ate among you with the wounds and then started to rise into the heavens. Would you really be like, yeah, I don't know. Saw Penn and Teller do something like that. Right? This constant thing, show me, show me, show me, do this, do that. They really don't want a sign. Verse 12, when he heard this, he sighed deeply. This is, this is actually painful for him. The Greek here is that he really was pained over this. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back in the boat and left them, and he crossed the other side of the lake. What does he mean he will not give them any such sign? Hasn't he already given them all, all kinds of signs? Here's what he means. He says, I am not going to give them the kind of sign where everybody has to go, whoa, yeah, that's, that's it. We, we, there's no doubt left. Right? Because that's not how a relationship of trust and love happens. It, it, it just doesn't happen that way. And we're going to talk more about this here in a minute, but... If you are absolutely, positively sure of the relationship you're in, whether it's a friendship or whether it's a marriage, if you have absolutely no doubts, if you know 100% that that person over there is never going to lie to you, never going to cheat to you, never going to do all that other kind of stuff, you haven't got a relationship. You've got a programmed robot. That's not how trust works. Trust means I don't know this for 100% sure, but I'm stepping out anyway. Because I love you and I can't get enough of you. Right? Isn't that how that works? And that's what's going on here. I have had this before. I have had people come to me as a pastor and say, I think my husband or wife is cheating on me. What do I do? And I'm like, what is the evidence do you think that they're they're cheating on you? You're like, "I, I just have a feeling. I was like, well, feeling doesn't do it. You haven't got biblical grounds to divorce them, leave them, whatever, just because I kind of feel funny. So... I'm quite frankly, if you want to know for sure, I'm telling you right now, this is what I always tell them. Hire a private detective, right? And go find out. But I tell them this. But here's what I'm picking up. Even if the private detective goes and comes back and says, nope, he's clean, she's clean, right? That, that's not what's going on. 
it won't be enough. How many of you have seen the movie? I think it's Knocked Up. You seen Knocked Up? <laughs> Not that I would watch such trash, but have you seen Knocked Up? Do you remember where the wife is convinced her husband is cheating? And it turns out he's doing what? He's in a fantasy baseball league. That's where he is all night. He's at a fantasy baseball league. That's what he's doing, right? She goes running into a house thinking she's going to find him with another girl, and he's there with another couple of geeks, and they're arguing over, you know, who gets Albert Pujols, right? Here's the problem with that. If that's what you suspect, it will never go away. You can, pri- you can hire the private eye, and they will go out and they will report back to you, but then you'll just be convinced for now, and in a month from now you'll have more suspicions because you have no real trust. That's what's going on here. The Pharisees have seen Jesus do this, 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 that, and they're saying, not enough, not enough, not enough, not enough, because they never will trust him. Never. Because he does not fit into their category of what a Savior should be. Right? Verse 14. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. And as they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, Watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, what do those two have in common? One's religious, one's not. What they have in common is neither one of them believe in Jesus, right? Verse 15, as they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Neither one of them believe in Christ. Verse 16, and as they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. And 17, Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? Now this is very important, verse 16. You have eyes, can't you see? Verse 18, you have eyes, can't you see? Keep that in mind. That's going to become important in a minute. You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterwards? Twelve, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet, he asked them. How does this fit in with the Pharisees and Herod and all that kind of stuff. He's saying, when he fed the 5,000, when he fed the 4,000, did anybody ask him to do it? Think back. Did anybody say, I'm hungry? You know? Nobody, even at this point, nobody's pointing at Jesus like he's the server at Olive Garden with the unlimited bread of basket, okay? All right? That's not what's happening. It's not, that's not what's going on. Nobody asks him to feed them. He just does it. At both times, it says he has compassion on them, and he just does it. And he literally brings food out of nowhere, just like God did in the desert in Exodus. Because only God can do that. What is he saying? I am not somebody you can manipulate. I am not somebody who even asks, you know, waits to be asked. I am somebody who with moved compassion, I just give because I am God, the same God who fed you in the desert. That is what he is saying. And the disciples are like, huh? They don't get it. They don't get it. Because faith does not come just from proximity to Jesus. 
You can go to church all you want and not come to faith in Jesus Christ. I grew up in the church. My father was a pastor. I was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Super holy, right? I was there for every youth group thing. Because I had to be. I heard all the lessons. I did all that. I, I have been there for all of that. Right? I am so... I, here's how old school I am. I was there when they were still trying to ban rock and roll as the devil's music. And they gave that up long ago, right? I remember watching videotapes. That's how old I am. VHS tapes. Talking about... There's a VHS tape. I now have it on DVD. I wanted it so bad I found it. Called Hell's Bells. And it's a documentary about the evil of rock and roll. And literally at one point, they're playing Journey. And you're, I, now I watch it. I mean, I literally laugh so hard. I feel like, Journey? Journey is satanic? Journey's going to drive me to become a drug addict? Now, don't get me wrong. I love Journey. Right? If you don't like, don't stop believing. There's something. You have no heart. But journey, honestly, right? I remember in the early 80s, being a kid in the early 80s, I could have seen like Slayer or like Venom. Journey? That's how paranoid it, it, it was. But I was there, and there are always people there. And, and so many of them have walked away from the faith because just being there does not do it. That does not work. You need to hear and understand and that's what does it. And neither the Pharisees, nor Herod, nor the disciples are there yet. They're not there. Verse 22. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus. And they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. We've seen them do this last week, right? Take them away from the people, right? And then spitting on the man's eye... We saw that last week as well. He laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? That's literally in the Greek the same thing he just asked the disciples a second ago. Now that's going to be important. And the man looked around and said, yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. And then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were open. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. And Jesus sent them away saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. Okay, now, this, this miracle has perplexed Christians for thousands of years. Because, why does Jesus have to hit him twice? Right? Jesus is a guy who is at creation, creating the entire universe. So why does he have to lay his hands on this guy twice? Now, some of you have been around revolution long enough, know that, I, I've, said, I've told this story before. When I was in seminary, I was a graduate assistant to a couple of professors. Now, what that meant was that I taught their freshman classes when they weren't available, i.e. didn't want to. And I graded their freshman papers when they didn't want to, i.e. all the time. And I would go into their freshman classes, and I was sitting there with one of my favorite professors, a guy named Randy Harris. And he has taught the life and teachings of Jesus Christ at that time for about 20 years. 
And we were coming up on this story in Mark. And he pulled me aside one day and he said, I've been teaching this for a long time. Now I'm going to ask people what's going on here. Whatever you do, don't laugh at the responses. Because I am telling you, you will get some doozies. And I said, what do you mean? He said, let me tell you my three favorite responses. He said, number three, temporary power outage. Jesus is tired. He just hasn't quite got the power he usually does. He's got to kind of gig it up again and and zap him twice. (laughs) This is a real response from a freshman Bible major. And you wonder why the church is in the shape that it's in. Second favorite response. Jesus has to be careful. If he gives him too much power, he'll be like Superman and can be able to see through walls. But my, Randy's favorite response of all time was this. The reason Jesus has to lay his hands on him twice, the reason why he cannot see the first time is he has spit in his eye. <laughs> it's a decent response, right? <laughs> Here's what you need to know about the way Jesus does business. Um, there's, a, there's a scholar, there's an English scholar by the name of N.T. Wright. And I don't agree with everything he believes. I think his, his stuff on Paul is really kind of out there. But his stuff on Jesus is really good. And N.T. Wright points out in, in one of his many books on Jesus that whatever Jesus does, there's a symbolic meaning to it. So in other words, when Jesus, Jesus is not just teaching when he's talking. Jesus is teaching when he does anything. Okay? Anytime he's around the disciples, he is teaching. When he, when, he, when he runs the money changers out of the temple, he is teaching. Right? It's not just because he's ticked. He is doing something symbolic. So when he feeds the 4,000 and the 5,000, he is doing something symbolic. We've seen this. He's claiming to be God. He is claiming to be the God of Exodus. When he walks on the water, he is claiming to be God. That harkens back to Job. He is saying, I am God. When he walks past them while he's walking on the water, he's doing the same thing God did to Moses and, and, and Elijah. He's, he's, his presence is going past them. He's telling them, I am God. Everything Jesus does is symbolic. It's teaching. And what he's doing here with the disciples, he has taken this man away, the only people around. It's this blind man, Jesus, and the disciples. And he takes them, and he touches them, and he says, can you see? Kind of. And then he says, can you see now? It's the same thing he asked the disciples in the boat. And then he says, yes, now I can see. When he asks the blind man the same question he asked the disciples... He is doing something important. He is teaching. He didn't have a temporary power outage. He's not worried about making the guy Superman. And it's not because he has spit in his eye. What he is showing them is, to know who I am, to see clearly, takes time and it takes me. The disciples still don't get it. But what he's telling the disciples is, stick with me. You will. And the disciples don't get it. They don't get it. They're just 
you know, they mean well, but they're not really that different from the Pharisees and Herod. Herod does not want a Messiah. Herod wants a miracle man who will do what he tells him to do. The Pharisees want somebody who falls in exactly with their theology and will come and lead a military revolt. Because that's what they want. Right? The disciples also want a Messiah who will lead them in a military revolt. And they want to be the ones who sit around him all the time. The ones in the inner circle. But Jesus came to do none of that. And the reason you know that the disciples don't get it is that when Jesus is arrested, the disciples don't follow him to the cross. They scatter. They take off. Even though Jesus tells them again and again, I am going to suffer and die. They're like, ah, he's saying something symbolic. We don't really get what he says half the time. And when he's arrested, they're like, this isn't supposed to happen. And they bail. And we look at them and we think, stupid disciples. Until something bad happens to us. And they were like, you know who I am? And we bail. Because we're not willing to follow him to the cross either. Right? Not all that different, are we? When I became a Christian, I became a Christian because I was desperate. A doctor told me I had cancer, and I didn't want to die. I thought I was hot stuff. I was a congressional aide. I was getting ready to run for the state senate. God's got to save me. I'm me. I mean, I've got important stuff to do. And he saved me. And after he saved me, on the one hand, everything I had thought about doing seemed petty and little. But on the other hand, I, it was still all about me. And then I went to seminary. And I, when I went to seminary, I didn't know it, but I went to a seminary that had been drifting theologically left for some time. And so I go in, and what they tell me is, well, the Bible is not without errors. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, well, that whole blood stuff, that's, that's overstated. Jesus really came to start a kingdom that, that, that started a, a social program. I guess I'm like, oh, okay. And they're telling me all this stuff, and I'm just eating it up. They're telling me God doesn't really know the future, all this other kind of stuff. And I, none of this stuff is true, by the way. Don't take this as bull. But this is what they're telling me. And I liked it because I had a chip on my shoulder about the church anyway. I'd grown up in the church. Right? My father was a pastor. I didn't really like him. And so they're saying, those bunch of rubes believe that stuff. And because I've got a chip on my shoulder, I'm like, yeah, that's right, bunch of rubes. I'm not a rube anymore. I'm better. And so I start to believe this stuff. And I start to look down on those people. Right? And I go off to my hoity-toity Ivy League education. And then I really start to look down on people. The only problem was, what I was doing was, I wasn't dealing with the Jesus of the Bible. 
I was dealing with a Jesus that looked a lot like me. It was a Jesus who seemed to want all the things I already wanted. Who seemed to be okay with everything I wanted to do. Ever been that way? Right? Ever been convinced that if Jesus came back, he'd like what you like? Right? I mean, what if Jesus came back and he said, you know, being both human and divine, I really like polka. And I like the HGTV. I like HGTV, Jesus says. Yeah. I like to spend a good Saturday night playing Risk. Oh, don't ge- out geek yourself like that in the mill in the public, for goodness sakes. <laughs> would you be like, okay? Or would you be like, absolutely disappointed and just, oh my gosh, seriously? Playing Risk on a Saturday night, listening to some guy playing accordion? Really? What if Jesus was totally different than what you wanted him to be? See, I've got a sneaking suspicion that he is. You go to different churches, and it seems like you're hearing a totally different Jesus than you heard in that other church. You turn on the television, and, 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 and one Jesus is all about judgment and is mad and is red-faced and is nasty, and then the other Jesus just wants to give you, you know, bucks, benzes, and babes, Right? And you're like, which Jesus is Jesus? The Bible pretty consistently says the one you don't want him to be. See, I tell my wife all the time. I occasionally get offers from like churches in Columbus or Cincinnati or somewhere. I once had a, once had a church in Honolulu, Hawaii call me please. And, and I'm like, and, and you know, oh man, Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, and, and my wife keeps telling me he wants us here. And I'm like, shut up, woman. Um, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure he does, and and it's, I hate that. (laughs) It's not that I don't love you guys. It's just that I really love the beach and stuff to do, you know? (laughs) When it's like, do we go to B-dubs or B-dubs? It's like, (laughs) oh, I don't know. I guess (laughs) B-dubs. I think that's when you know 
that you really know Jesus is when he's saying, go there. And you go, I don't want to go there. And he goes, I know. Because none of the disciples, none of the disciples, he sent to where they wanted to go. None of them. Not one. You look them all up. None of them ended up where they wanted to be. So which Jesus is it? The Jesus who, who just rains down blessings? or the Jesus who's always angry? It's the Jesus who says, go there. There's a guy I was reading about this week. I think his name was Vikesh. I'd have to look it up. He was in India. And he became a Christian in a radical Hindu community. And he was in this little church, smaller than this. I mean, like a dozen people, right? In this teeny tiny building, without any air conditioning, in the middle of nowhere. And he meets his bride there. And they get married. And they go on their honeymoon. And they come back to the church. And they're standing up before the church to pledge that their marriage, before the entire church, will witness to Jesus Christ. Which is a pretty cool thing. And a lady comes into the church that they've never seen before. And she sits down. But anyone's welcome. They don't ask any questions. Just come on in. And this woman comes in. And as they're sitting there talking to each other and talking about how they want their marriage to show the world who Jesus Christ is, she explodes the bomb that she carried in with her. And it kills everybody in that church except the husband. And it mangles one side of his body. And do you know what that man with that mangled body who lost his bride and his church is doing? Preaching Jesus Christ. That guy knows Jesus Christ. The real Jesus Christ. That guy knows Jesus. The one true son of God. The Lord of the universe. The one who will return again. That guy knows Jesus Christ. Do you? Let's pray. Father God, please forgive us that we tend to commit the idolatry of trying to remake you in our image. Forgive us for trying to self-justify our selfishness and, 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 and when you so often call us into the darkness to go where we don't want to be, to be with the people that we don't understand and to love them, just as you did. I'm sure that you did not want to leave your throne in heaven where you knew perfect love with the Father and the Spirit to take on the body of a peasant person in a third world country to suffer and die and be misunderstood your entire life. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you said as much. Is there any other way to do this? But you did it anyway out of love. May we, out of love for what you did, do the same. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.